Uh, we're looking at John chapter 12 today. If you want to turn that up, it's page 1079 if you're following in the Pew Bibles. One oh seven nine, which I happen to think is one of the most powerful passages in the New Testament. John chapter 12, verses 1 to 11. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. And may God bless his word to us today. As we move into spring, we are returning to the Gospel of John. Uh, A few weeks ago, uh, we finished the the first part up to chapter 11, and we uh, had as a general heading of that, signs of life, and you may remember uh, that there were seven signs or miracles scattered throughout those first 11 chapters, uh, where Jesus, through those miracles, through those signs, pointed to the life that is available in Him. And whenever we receive Jesus Christ by faith, we receive his life. Now, from chapter 12 to chapter 21, which we're going to deal with over the next few months, uh, we will see that this is all about the glory of Jesus, signs of glory. Now, of course, this section includes the death, uh, the crucifixion of Jesus. And perhaps you think to yourself, well, there's not really a lot glorious about someone's death. And yet, in a sense, it was the most glorious part of his ministry because it was through his death that he was going to save the world, through his death. It is a glorious death, and the crucifixion was followed, of course, by the resurrection, and the resurrection proved and affirmed that that was a glorious work. He was doing his most glorious work when he was most slow, when he was most vulnerable, when it looked as if he was most defeated. And most of these next 10 chapters will deal with the next 10 days of Jesus' life. So 10 days, half the gospel is focusing in on 10 days. 
because they are the 10 most important days of his life, and I would argue the 10 most important days in human history. We are in the season of Lent, the 40 days which the Christian church has used to prepare for Easter. And so it's good that we're in these these passages. We'll hop around a little bit to tie in with the festival of Easter and and what happens. But there's also teaching in uh, John's gospel in these chapters that is unique to John. There's a whole section on the unity of the church, which is unique to John. And there's a whole section on uh, the role of the Holy Spirit, which again is unique to John's gospel. But it's all about the glory, signs of glory. Now, this word glory is an interesting word. In in the Hebrew, the word glory is kabod or kaboth. And that word really signifies a weightiness or strength, a weightiness. It also signifies honor or splendor or magnificence. It is mentioned 199 times in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the Greek word for glory is doxa, hence we have doxology, to honor or to respect someone. And so whenever we glorify God, when we worship Him, we give Him honor, we give Him respect. Whenever we obey Him and serve Him, we are giving Him honor, we are giving Him glory. And sometimes when God's glory descended upon an individual, there was a sense of weightiness or heaviness that came down sometimes like a cloud whenever the the temple was opened and they they asked for God's presence to come, the Shekinah glory, the cloud of God's presence filled the temple to such an extent that they couldn't even minister. And when the Holy Spirit, who is spoken of more often in the New Testament, comes down upon a gathering, there is again this sense of weightiness. There is a presence that brings joy or sometimes conviction of sin and sometimes tears. And sometimes, as in Pentecost, the Spirit manifested Himself in different languages and in fire. Now, my prayer is that as we go through these chapters of John's gospel, we will experience something of the glory, the glory of God, the weightiness, the splendor of God amongst us. And where better to start than a story of someone who sought to give Jesus as much honor and glory as she possibly could. Jesus has come to a village in the outskirts of Jerusalem called Bethany. It is where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus live. It is not clear in in John's gospel in which house this event happens. Matthew and Mark suggest that it is in someone else's home. It's not in their home. Uh, Lazarus is at the meal. He has been resurrected. He is Uh, the living embodiment of the fact that Jesus has performed a great miracle. And if we skip down to verse 9, we see that a largish crowd was there because they wanted to see Lazarus as much as they wanted to see Jesus. Lazarus, if you like, was the local celebrity. He was a point of discussion and debate and wonder. But he was also an irritant. Because the Pharisees and the teachers of the law saw Lazarus, they saw that a lot of people through Lazarus were coming to Jesus, and they're thinking, this guy needs to be stopped. So it's interesting that not only are they plotting to kill Jesus, they're also plotting to kill Lazarus. You know, the testimony of a changed life can be a threat to some people. 
When Jesus changes a life, you think it would be good news, but the world wants to keep its own, and Satan wants to put a target on the back of those who have given their lives to Jesus. When we are raised to life by Jesus, we come into the sights of Satan, and he will begin to make life more difficult. He will create new temptations. He will generate opposition to you. Now, Lazarus was protected by God in all of this. There's no record of Lazarus actually being killed. But it is good to be aware that new life brings new threats, and sometimes it can be the religious people. They're not Christians, but they're religious people, and they cause you the most opposition. In Northern Ireland, it's a fairly religious culture, fairly church-going culture. A lot of people were brought up to go to church. And maybe they liked you when you were one of the lads or one of the lasses. But whenever you start to talk about Jesus or you start to get serious about your faith, they say, this guy's gone a bit weird. And you'll start to see opposition. Lazarus had become a celebrity. He had some notoriety. But there was a threat on his life because there's always a cost to following Jesus. And some of you today are churchgoers, but you would freely admit you're not a born-again Christian. And I have no doubt part of the reason is because you say, I don't want to be known as one of those weird types. But you're in a good place here, and who knows what might happen. But Lazarus was under threat. And whenever you trust in Jesus, you will start to make new enemies, and you will also start to make new friends. Now, Martha is also present and serving at the meal, and this seems to be her default mode. She is a doer. She's a practical person. And her service was an act of worship as well. And whenever we serve the Lord in church or in community, it is an act of devotion. God has given gifts to us, and He puts them to work, blessing others in love through us. And that is an act of worship. It is an act of sacrifice. It is an act of devotion. And there are many in this church in Highkirk who quietly and efficiently serve on a committee or a catering team, or who are involved in the children's ministry or creche, or who facilitate a ministry or an outreach, or who give or who pray. And in this way, they are serving the Lord. They're giving glory to the Lord helping to be a partner in his building of the church. So there's a bit of Lazarus. Those of us who are followers of Jesus, there's a bit of Lazarus in us, and there's a bit of Martha in in all of us. There's the testimony of life that has been changed by Jesus, and that gives glory to God, but there's also a life of service, and we we put our our gifts to work for for God. And, And there's a bit of Martha in us as well, faithfully, week by week, month by month, we do this, and this gives God glory. But there's a third person in the narrative, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, and she is called Mary. And what I want to do is to focus for the next few minutes on Mary and to see that perhaps we need something of Mary in our character and in our devotion as well, with something of Lazarus, with something of Martha, but I want to argue that we need something of Mary. 
If Lazarus is an example of a life changed in the most radical way, and Martha is the example of selfless servanthood, then Mary is the example par excellence of extravagant worship. And there always needs to be room in our lives for extravagant worship. Our attention is drawn by John to three things that she did. First of all, she breaks open some very expensive oil or perfume. Secondly, she does something unusual with it. She washes Jesus' feet, I I suspect, and if you look at Matthew and Mark's uh, version of this, she also washes his head, but certainly John focuses on the feet. And then thirdly, she dries the feet with her hair. Now, let's look at each of those three, three things. So she breaks them. She goes, she finds this perfume. She brings this perfume with her, which is pure nard, or, or from spike nard, and that is very, very expensive. Now, I don't know a lot about perfumes. Uh, whenever I think of an expensive perfume, I think of Chanel Number no. 5, which is about 100 pounds a bottle. It was the last time I bought it anyway. Um, but this is, this is a different league here. This, this is a different league. This perfume is worth 300 denarii. Okay? So that's a laborer's wages for a year. Okay? So I want you to translate that into today's terms. 300 denarii is, in today's terms, about 24,000 pounds. Okay? Let that sink in. 24,000 pounds. So she takes this, this, this pure nard, which is probably an heirloom. Sometimes what happened was these things were passed down from family to family just in case you came across hard times and then you could sell it. It was also used, this kind of thing was also used to anoint a body at a funeral whenever a body had died. And so they would use this kind of thing for anointing a body. So Mary was thinking, how can I show how thankful I am to Jesus? He has raised Lazarus to life. My brother was dead. He's now alive. I'm so thankful. Perhaps also she was thankful for the the teaching that Jesus... um, was giving, uh, and she, she recognized and she sensed in Jesus that he was, he was unique. There was something special about him. Whether she realized all that we know about, with hindsight, all that we know about Jesus as the Son of God, uh, that was still something she was processing and working through. And in a prophetic way, she, in a sense, is, knows that Jesus is going to die sometime soon. She senses this. And so she thinks, I need to anoint his body for burial. So she gets, Mary of all the people in the room, she gets this kind of prophetic insight and foresight as to what is happening here. And so she decides that she would use this family heirloom, she would use this precious, precious oil to anoint him for his burial. And then the second thing that John draws the attention to is that not only did she use the ointment, and I'm sure she did put it on his head because it was a lot of ointment, But he focuses especially on the fact that she pours it on his feet. And this, of course, was an act of great humility and servanthood. Now, in the next chapter, in John 13, we will have the famous incident of Jesus pouring water and anointing 
and washing the feet of his disciples. But Mary prefigures that great act of service that Jesus did for his disciples as she washes his feet with this perfume. And of course, Jesus' feet would be pierced in the most cruel way as part of the crucifixion that would happen in a week's time. Now, she probably didn't realize this, but those beautiful feet of Jesus would be scarred and battered and bruised and pierced. And it is not beyond the imagining that as His body was impaled on the cross, that this perfume was so strong that His feet still smelt of the perfume of her act of devotion. Crucified hands and crucified feet for Mary, for me, and for you. It is also worth noting that each time Mary is mentioned in the gospel, she is at the feet of Jesus. Whenever she's mentioned, she's at the feet, listening to his teaching, or here, anointing his feet. So she breaks this very, very expensive perfume. She pours it on his head, on his feet. And then thirdly, and in some ways most extraordinarily of all, she unties her hair, she uncovers her hair, and she dries Jesus' feet with her hair. Now this is extraordinary, for in any culture that would be an intimate and rare event. But in a Jewish culture where women were always meant to keep their hair tied up and covered, The only person who should see a woman's hair uncovered was the husband. And and so in this act of love, in this act of devotion, you could say she was carried away. She got carried away. And this was an act of abandonment. It is an act of abandoned worship. And she doesn't care who sees it. It defies convention. And you can imagine, if you try in your imagination to get back into the room, you smell the perfume, you see Jesus reclining at the couch, you see this woman behind him, and she's doing this, and you can imagine the tension in the room. It's such an embarrassing thing. It is one of the most shocking incidents in the whole of the Bible. And Judas maybe speaks up, he maybe says what everyone else in the room is thinking. And in a falsely pious way, he says, this should have been sold and the money raised used to feed the poor. There's a good holy statement. And then Jesus says, the poor you will always have with you. He's not saying that we should not care for the poor. He's not saying we shouldn't feed the poor. No, he's saying the poor you will always have with you, but you won't always have me. And this woman has done this to prepare my body for burial. And she has brought me honor and glory. Whenever I am gone, there will be plenty of time to feed the poor. And in a sense, in this little phrase, we see Jesus again intimating that he is unique. I mean, who else, who else would receive this really, really extravagant gift? Thousands and thousands of pounds to wash on your feet. You would say, no, no. But Jesus says, no. She she realizes who I am. It is a sign of his glory. Who else could and should receive such an extravagant act of worship 
and not be embarrassed by it. It reminded me of uh, another extravagant, uh, abandoned act of worship in the Old Testament when David uh, was almost naked and he was dancing as the Ark of the Covenant was being restored. And he was dancing with all his might and dancing with all his heart. And, uh, and, and Michal, his, his wife, looked down from the window and despised him. And the Lord uh, cursed her and, and, in a sense, curses Judas here. Those who despise the act of worship are censured by the Lord. So be very, very careful what you say or what you comment about someone else and how they're worshiping. A few weeks ago in Sligo, uh, I shared already that uh, I was with the staff down in Sligo. I've stopped laughing, by the way. Uh, but at one of the times of worship, there was, it was a bit like open space, actually. It was just an extended worship. And uh, the, the sense of the Spirit was there. The, spe- the sense of the heaviness, that kaboth glory was, was on the meeting. And I was on my knees, and I saw a bishop flatten his face in adoration. And it's not the sort of thing you see very much of, but it was wonderful. And I think part of our problem is that we are so concerned about what other people are thinking about us around in our pew or wherever. We're so concerned. But it's great whenever you are so caught up with the love and devotion of Jesus that you don't really care a hoot what anyone else thinks. When the weight of glory is upon us, we react in different ways. But when we are hit by the wonder and the awesome truth that Jesus was taken and beaten and whipped and scourged and impaled on a cross for you and for me, there's a wonder there. And why would we not fall on our knees and in adoration? or do something silly and extravagant and costly. And no doubt there will be other people who will say, what a waste, what a waste of time, what a waste of money, what a waste of a career. I have no doubt that 30 years ago, whenever I decided to give up the law, well-paid, good salary, I have no doubt some people said, "What, what is Norman doing? Why is he leaving all that behind to go into ministry? There's a lovely book by Marva Dawn. It's a book on worship, and she has entitled the book, A Royal Waste of Time. I I love that. I just love that. A Royal Waste of Time. Now, there'll be people this Sunday who'll be out doing all kinds of things. They'll be shopping. They'll be on their bikes. They'll be playing golf. And they think what you're doing is a waste of time. So be it. But it's not. It's the best thing you could do today. It's the best thing you could do. There is no better place to be 
This is a royal waste of time. And it is good to be in this place because it is the place that Mary was at the feet of Jesus. Yes, it's good to be like Lazarus and to have the the new life of Jesus in us. It's good to be a Martha, to, to serve with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength with the gifts that God has given us and the abilities He has given to us. But sometimes there's room for extravagant acts of humility and worship and abandonment. You know, long before the the charismatics came on the scene in the Pentecostals, uh, God occasionally, through answers to prayer, would come in revival power upon people. There was the Welsh revival, there was the Scottish revival, there was the revival uh, with with us that began, we think, from the prayer meeting in Kells. And I was reading Howell Harris writes in 1740, uh, excuse the, the slightly quaint language, but I was last Sunday at the ordinance with Brother Roland where I saw, felt, and heard such things as that I can't send on paper any idea of. The power that continues with Brother Roland is uncommon. Such crying out and heartbreaking groans. There was silent weeping. There was holy joy and there were shouts of rejoicing. I never saw their amends and glory in the highest before. It would inflame your soul if you had been there. It is very common when he preaches for scores to fall down by the power of the word, pierced and wounded or overcome by the love of God, and sights of the beauty and the excellency of Jesus. And they lie on the ground, nature being overcome by the sights and enjoyments given to their heaven-born souls that it cannot bear, the spirit almost bursting the house of clay to go to its native home. Some lie there for hours, Some praising and admiring Jesus and His free grace, His distinguishing grace. Others wanting words to utter but can't find them. Others lie wounded under a sense of their piercing Jesus so that they can hardly bear it. An eyewitness of the 1859 revival, which of course touched here many Presbyterians, And someone writes of the preachings at which sometimes an entire large congregation seemed as if one molten mass of humiliation before God. The prostrations under an overwhelming sense of sin, the trances and unconscious hours of soul struggle called by those who pass through the experiences. Some were drunk in the spirit, some were even involved in strange dancings. All these were certainly connected with lifelong spiritual transformations. It was so un-Presbyterian. So let's have more of Mary's spirit of extravagant worship. Let us honor the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who wasted his life on us. He wasted, he poured out his life for us. If you're able, let's stand. And shall we pray? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Mary, we thank you for Lazarus, we thank you for Martha. 
But today we thank you especially for Mary and her wonderful, wonderful example and her sense of extravagant worship and abandonment to you. And perhaps, Lord, even today, even now, you want us to respond in some way, in some way that says, Jesus, we love you, we worship and adore you. So come, Holy Spirit, we pray for something of that Shekinah glory, something of that weightiness of your Spirit to descend upon us and to say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit.